0: Hi there, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyper-local progressive podcast based entirely in beautiful Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I'm Dan.
1: And I'm Mary. We've had a big week in Bay Ridge.
0: Yeah, if you're not sure what we're referring to, we're referring to...
1: The detainment of a pizza delivery man by the military police on the Fort Hamilton Army base, and they eventually turned him over to ICE. He was arrested on a Friday, story broke at least i heard about it on uh, tuesday big protest wednesday in bay ridge protests throughout the week in manhattan and now you know he was scheduled to be deported within a week and it's just like somebody was almost disappeared from our neighborhood
0: we've been following this pretty intensely we've gone to some of the protests We'll actually be releasing a special episode with audio from that protest that occurred at uh, John Paul Jones Park, otherwise known as Cannonball Park.
1: We've had some protests. We've had some marches in Bay Ridge. That one was serious. Seven people were arrested. It was civil disobedience. They were blocking traffic to draw attention to this issue. They are organizers. They are building coalitions with the DSA, with Bay Ridge for Social Justice. And they're working on a project called Sanctuary Hood which is spreading information about ICE and making sure people know their rights, especially when they're at work. And they're working together to tailor that sanctuary hood and come up with some materials that are tailored to our neighborhood and our specific needs, because Bay Ridge, we got to be on top of this.
0: Yeah, and that brought a lot of attention to it. And since then, the Legal Aid Society has managed to put a stay on Pablo's...
1: Temporary stay. It's only until July 20th.
0: Yes. So now we have a little bit more time to continue fighting and advocating. This is not the first time that this has happened, that people have disappeared from our neighborhood. And it almost certainly will not be the last time.
1: Yeah. Keep an eye on the story.
0: So to move on a little bit, petitioning has started for all local and state Races. You might think, hey, wait, no, we already went through petitioning. That was in May. That was for NY 11. Yeah, that was for congressional federal races. So, all of the local state stuff that is all happening this month. I think it ends July 9th.
1: Yep, petitions are due between July 9th and July 12th. So, you want to volunteer for campaigns? Now's the time to get involved. They're getting their petitions together.
0: Yeah, and this is in order for them to qualify for the ballot for primaries. In addition, while we're collecting primary ballots for local, the primaries for federal are actually going to be held June 26th. That's for our NY11 congressional contenders race. All of the Democrats are still on the ballot. Fightback Bay Ridge did a massive questionnaire and it's already released in Spanish, Chinese, and English. There is going to be a Russian translation and an Arabic translation coming out very soon and we will push those out to you guys as soon as we can. That is going to be for Our Staten Island, South Brooklyn seat, that is Dan Donovan versus Michael Grimm on the Republican side, and a six-way race on the Democratic side. Get involved and also prep for the state and local and volunteer for their petitioning. There's a lot of stuff going on this month.
1: That's an awful lot of national and state news. Is there anything local? I love the local news. What's going on in Bay Ridge? Come on, this is Bay Ridge. Radio Free Bay Ridge.
0: All right. We have one very civic geeky kind of thing that's coming up very soon. That's my favorite
1: kind of geeky thing.
0: A supplemental transit committee meeting for the local community board, Community Board 10. That is a additional discussion to talk about bike lanes in our neighborhood, specifically the last transportation committee meeting. The DOT was proposing some bike lanes along 92nd Street. There were some concerns about specific turns, about the safety of those lanes. And also, there were hints that they wanted to start up a visioning session, which a is- visioning A visioning session? A visioning session. I know, I'm very, very geeky about this, but- For those of you who don't know what a visioning session is, it's just getting a bunch of people in a room to plan without explicitly responding to a specific proposal. It's about getting everyone together and saying, what do you want to see in your neighborhood? And doing that for bike lanes, getting a bunch of cyclists and a bunch of residents in a room together to figure out what works best and then send that to the DOT? That's normally not how it works.
1: It It should be. I see people on bikes all the time. They're already biking, so we might as well plan our bike lanes around where people are biking and where they're trying to get to. So show up to that meeting and lend your support. Mary, what day is that? That's June 12th. All right. Well, I think that's all the news from Bay Ridge. Oh, wait. We have a whole interview ready for you.
0: So we sat down with Matilde Frontis, who is running for...
1: New York State Assembly. That's District 46.
2: Hi, everybody. Again, thank you, Dan and Mary, for having me. My name is Mathilde Frontis. I am a Coney Island resident. I've been living there for 33 years. Hmm. And I'm here today because I am running for the 46th Assembly District, which is always exciting when I say it.
0: So what is the 46th Assembly District?
2: So the 46th (laughs) Assembly District is a swath of southwestern Brooklyn, which includes all of Coney Island from Ocean Parkway all the way down to Seagate, mm-hmm. and parts of Bath Beach, Brighton Beach, mm-hmm. Gravesend. Diker
1: Heights and Bay Ridge. Yay, there we go.
0: All <laughs> right. So I think what is it? It was something like seventy Uh the dividing
1: line, it zigs and zags a little bit, yeah. but it's it, the border's seventy eighth street, seventy exactly. nine. Right around
2: seventy-seventh yeah. or so.
1: Yeah. Right around.
0: Yeah. So if anyone is south of that, yep. this, they're in the district. Yeah, you are in the district, and this is the seat that was just recently vacated by Pam Harris. So what's your history in the district?
2: Sure. A lot of people are curious to know who I am because they've never heard my name before. And I appreciate that. So hello again to everybody in Bay Ridge listening. I moved to Coney Island in 85. I was a little girl at the time, about seven years old, which is why I say I've been there for 33 years. Previously, my family and I lived in Southern Crown Heights. So I am the eldest of four children. Um, My mother and father were both born and raised in a beautiful city of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. So I am Haitian-American, and as the eldest of four children, it means that I grew up in a home where we spoke multiple languages. I do speak Haitian Creole. I speak French decently, but uh, not quite ready to teach a French class yet. And obviously, I was born and raised here, and my language of comfort and my language of proficiency is English, obviously. So Coney Island is my hometown, It's where I grew up. It's where I spent my formative years. It's quite extraordinary, really, when we look at the neighborhoods where we grow up. We often don't realize how much our immediate environments impact Mm. who we are, who we become. And our sensibilities and the things that we become interested in. If we're raised on a farm, if we're raised in a big city.
1: I'm from central Pennsylvania, so Eric and I sometimes commiserate on being the (laughs) non-city folk.
2: (laughs) If there was a movie made of the years of when I moved to Coney Island, I think Mm -hmm. people would understand why I'm running for the seat and how I got here. What they would see is a little girl growing up in Coney Island, looking around, looking to the left, looking to the right. And quite honestly, trying to make sense of a lot of the things she saw. Those questions, frankly, started as early as high school. When I was uh, twelve, I was a freshman at Edward Murrow High School. Oh, hey, I'm Edward R. Murrow as oh, well. Yeah, All right, cool. Yeah, those were my best years. Color color coded, <laughs> no bells.
0: What what opta did you get? Okay, sorry guys, if anyone else is listening to this, you have no idea what we're talking about.
2: Yeah, Insider <laughs> conversation. Note. So it seems like yesterday when I found myself sitting in the library at Murrow, pondering my future, as many Murrow High School students did. Instead of having fun and enjoying our youth, we were worried about what the future held for us and what we were going to do after college. So I started putting those pieces together. And a lot of adults were very helpful to me, the school social worker, the assistant principal, all of whom I had great relationships with, said, well, what do you care about? What are you passionate about? And I said, I see myself doing something to help my community. And I went into this elaborate thing about Coney Island and how I'd see some Mm. social problems, homelessness, gun violence. I noticed that there weren't a lot of programs and that affected me. It was, in fact, growing up in Coney Island that led me to major as a social work student at NYU. That's a direct correlation. Because when the adults heard what I was interested in, they said, you sound like... You're talking about social work, community organizing, nonprofit leadership, and that's why I became a 16-year-old freshman at NYU at the School of Social Work, where I teach now as an adjunct assistant professor.
1: You went to NYU, but then you could have worked at nonprofits or in a community anywhere in New York, but you came back to Coney Island right away?
2: I did. That was
1: part of the vision,
2: right? You know, there's a saying, a charity starts at home, even in my emails. I have a signature that says to make the world a better place, starting your own community. It's that kind of thing, like who exactly is going to make it into the place that you want it to be? So yeah, I would then go on to do all sorts of other graduate programs. But quite honestly, during that journey, I kept saying to myself, all right, well, when this is all done, I'd be coming back. The idea would evolve over the years, but I remember when it clicked and I said, oh, I know, I'll start a community agency. It could be a multi-service agency. And I'm watching, I'm learning, I'm talking to people in the community. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing a lot of institutions that come to prey on the community, no disrespect. You know, a lot of people in Coney Island don't have a bank account. They kind of live and die by these check cashing places. And again, I'm in my 20s. I'm in Boston. I was a student at Harvard. I'm thinking to myself, you know, we don't have financial literacy programs. I was always jotting down notes. And every time I went home to see my parents, I'm looking around the neighborhood at what I see. I'm saying, wow, wow, okay. I see what's happening here. When the time was right, when I came back to New York, I came back and I started Urban Neighborhood Services, which is how most people in Coney Island came to know me. This young lady started a community agency right on the main boulevard, which wow. everybody has to pass coming and going home from the subway. It's on Mermaid Avenue. Yeah.
0: What were the early days of that like, starting that up for the first time?
2: It was filled with a lot of uncertainty. I just knew that I wanted to make myself available. I knew that I cared a lot about the community. It bothered me that sometimes their quality of life was being impacted by not knowing a certain type of information. I just was so struck by that. That maybe if someone could take a class or a workshop or someone could tell them about something that they didn't know before, whether it was saving or investing or opening an account for their kids to go to college. Like I just became obsessed with this idea that sharing information with people could transform their lives.
1: Yeah. In that organization, did you have support from community institutions or personal mentors?
2: I did. I started asking around. I made a lot of cold calls. And I have to say, till this day, I remember it like it was yesterday. Everybody was kind. I literally got a directory of the community. (laughs) And I remember calling people. They probably said, who is this kid? I probably sounded like I was 12, honestly. (laughs) And I just remember saying, hi, my name is Matil Frontes. We've never met, but... I've been living out here a long time and I'm starting a community organization and I'd like to tell you about it. And they'd be like, What? You know, but then, you know, (laughs) they'd say, Yeah, 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 come on over. And that's how I met members of the clergy. That's how I met other executive directors who were running their own organization. Mm -hmm. I did get support and it made a world of difference. But at the end of the day, it was me. As a 20-something, I had to write those grants. I had to wow. secure funding for the agency. And then we built it from scratch. When I moved into my first office in June of 2008, we honestly didn't have a lot of money. I had just got a small grant for $18,000. And at the time I said, you know what? I'm going to take this $18,000 and treat it like it's 180 dollars I said, I'm going to wow. use it to pay first month's rent. I'm going to get a couple of desks, get a computer, and I'm sure the rest will take care of itself. I was learning as I went along. Like many other people, it starts with something in your heart. And if you overthink it, you'll probably never do it. Even now as I'm talking to you, I'm just like, wow, that was pretty scary. you know. But you (laughs) just go in and you just do it. And little by little, the money started coming. But I tell you, the experience that I had sitting in my office as an executive director Number one, it was just such an amazing feeling um, (laughs) to be able to sit there with an open door and have people walk in and just talk to you. I don't really know a word to describe that. It just really made me feel part of the community. People coming by all the time. How's Ms. Frontis? How's everything? You know, me asking about their family. They ask about my family. People telling us their problems. You know, Well, how can we help you? What's going on? Little by little, we started expanding our portfolio of services based on what people needed. Mm. So in other words, when we opened, I didn't know that we were going to do job and training resource that came about because everybody that came by said, I'm looking for a job. Is that something you guys help with? After we said, no, not really. No, not really. After a while, I'm like, you know, what? I'm not going to say no, not really anymore. We got to do this right away. And that's how many of our programs started, Veteran Services. When you open your doors to the community, you have to be ready to move as they move. That foundation is really what led me here now as a candidate, because I've been on the ground, as they say. Yeah. It was a storefront agency where people opened the door and I was sitting right in the back. My door was open. <laughs> And they had direct contact to me. As we grew and as we became bigger and bigger, I'm not going to lie, at some point it did shift. It started with me doing some of those programs Mm -hmm. to now I'm getting a little funding and I hired people. So now I had people to run the programs. But I was always still and everyone always knew me on a first name basis. While I was at Urban Neighborhood Services, I wore many hats. I wasn't just an executive director. Mm. I also fancied myself to be a community organizer and someone who brings people together. And one of my signature issues in Coney Island has been gun violence. The short version, because trust (laughs) me, there's a lot that I could say, but the short version is that really from the very first night that I moved there as a little girl, one hears gunshots and one just doesn't understand really what's going on and, and why am I hearing this? And it would sort of just remain in the back of my mind that this is a community that's kind of in turmoil. Years later, in 1999, a few doors down from my home, one of my neighbors was shot and killed in front of his home. Mm. Um, a young man who was born to Chinese immigrant parents, uh, his name was Gary Wong. He lived just a few doors down from me. And it was a Sunday night, and I was about to go somewhere, and I heard some shots. You know, the cops came right away, and it was just very shocking because I knew Gary personally. You know, he used to play with all the kids on the block, my little brother, mm-hmm. his himself, his siblings, etc. All of these things would sort of remain in the back of my mind and really just troubled me. It troubled me greatly, and the violence wouldn't let up. In December 2009, 10 years after Gary uh, passed away, I sent out to, I call it a who's who of people Mm -hmm. in the community. And I said, please come out to this emergency meeting to discuss the ongoing gun violence in Coney Island. We have to stand up and do something about this. Because what was happening is there'd be a shooting and people just say, wow, that's a shame. Another shooting would happen a day after. This is, this is, wow, this is crazy what's going on here. No sort of organized effort. Just the other day, I told my students at NYU this. I said, guys, if you're in a room and a voice in your head says someone should do something about X, Y, Z, and you wait a few minutes and no one is saying, that means that that's so-
0: That's you. <laughs> that's
2: you. <laughs> you're the person who has to do something about X, Y, Z. That's how life works. That's something you have to do. Like, we can't just keep saying, this is a shame. Someone should do something about this. So we had this big, big community meeting and I said, we need to build a coalition in Coney Island to deal with this gun violence. We had elections that same night. I had the vision and I wanted to be behind the scenes. They were like, no, you'll be one of the co-chairs. So I was elected co-chair of that.
0: I mean, I can't even imagine like the process of building that coalition. Like, what was that like?
2: Yeah, it's not easy. In fact, when we had the first group, so let me be clear, in December 2009, the coalition that I found, it was called the Coney Island Coalition Against Violence. That lasted exactly two years to the day. It feels like it was a different time Then we didn't record everything. Like now every meeting I go to, there's recording, people taking pictures. So we just have like some pictures. We have some articles. Like if you look it up, you Google it, you'll see video clips of marches that we had. There was a two-year-old girl who was shot in her leg while she was playing in front of her building. And I was the one who kind of organized a march and met in front of my office. But what ended up happening is that for two years, we met faithfully every single month at a large community meeting. And the model that we had then was very, very different than the model that we have now. Back then, it was about the individual members doing something for anti-violence and then coming to the monthly meeting to report on what are you doing in your agency about anti-violence. It's a good model. But then what ended up happening is after two years, people said, you know what? This works. We're all going to keep doing anti-violence work in our organizations. Let's phase this out quietly. That was in December 2011. So then we had a moment of respite in terms of gun violence in Coney Island. December 2013, two back-to-back shootings. The week of Christmas, two young men lost their lives in Mm. my community. Even as I see her talking about it, it feels otherworldly because, again, it is something that will always continue to defy logic. This idea of people dying before their time over nothing, a glance, an exchange of words, and then just like that, they're gone. And the first one happened the day before Christmas, and we were all stunned. And then Mm. another one happened in another building the day after Christmas. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was like, that is it. That is it. That's it. So December 27, the early morning of Friday, December 27, 2013, I sent out another SOS email. Tonight at my office, I want everybody there show up because Mm -hmm. two people died in our community this week. And thus began the Coney Island Anti-Violence Collaborative.
1: You mentioned that the Coney Island Anti-Violence Collaborative was kind of the 2.0 Was it a different approach? Did you have a different model this time around?
2: As fate would have it, not only that, it was a whole different cast of characters. I can't believe it. So some people were the same, but a lot of people who were around when we started in 2009 by 2013, it's a difference of four years. Some of them had retired because not everybody had lived in Coney Island. Many people Mm -hmm. were stakeholders. Yeah, so they were clergy. They were heads of organizations. People moved. People retired. People were transferred. But also what we did differently this time is that, yes, it's a coalition and yes, there's different organizations, but my agency was the lead agency. We took the responsibility to do the work. Truth is we were doing that before too, but we had more capacity. We had more staff and we were the glue that kind of kept it together. So for instance, in 2009, we had a budget of zero dollars. From December 2009 to December 2011, we were incorporated. We filed papers, but at no time did we ever apply for any money. The second anti-violence coalition, we got seed money from the Fund for the City of New York. I wrote a proposal to Senator Savino. It was all over the papers, $250,000, all the Mm -hmm. headlines. Senator gives anti-violence group $250,000. So we treated it differently. I also had this idea for a neighborhood patrol group. That we call the Step Up Project, it's still going strong in Coney Island. They do street patrols about three times a week. They don these burgundy jackets. Mm. We got them phones. People say, "Well, are they like guardian angels?" And I said, <laughs> "I don't know that they, they are." They
0: don't have the berets. <laughs>
2: they don't have berets. They cannot do citizen arrests, but it's this idea that it's bringing visibility. Yeah, you know, they go around. They talk to the young people in the neighborhood. They'll talk to people in the buildings, and promote this message of, you know, how's everything going? Hearing anything? You know, just kind of yeah. checking in. Nice. So that's what made it different the second time around. New ideas, new people, and a little bit of funding to back up the work.
1: How could somebody get involved, either if they're based in Coney Island or maybe somebody in Bay Ridge that's interested in that work?
2: Oh, yes, yes. First of all, they should visit the organization online, ciavc.org. Uh, Coney Island, org, CIABC. And also the group meets the second Wednesday of every month. The location has never changed. As a matter of fact, the location we're meeting now is the same location we used to meet. How many years ago was that? Eight years ago when we had the first coalition, (laughs) which is the auditorium of the Liberation Diploma Plus High School. And we serve a hot meal every month.
1: When you were building urban neighborhood services and reaching out and building these relationships, did Mm -hmm. you stay in Coney Island or did you ever branch into other neighborhoods?
2: Um, No. When I started Urban Neighborhood Services, my vision was that it would start in Coney Island and that I would see whether there was an opportunity to branch out into other communities. I always kept it as a possibility in the back Mm. of my mind, but it is fair to say that I started it based on the high level of need of Coney Island. In other words, we never replicated or started another office, no. However, I should say that we absolutely did not only serve people in Coney Island, and I'm very proud of that. First of all, we became an agency that was known well beyond our borders in Coney Island. And many times when we were doing certain programs, whether it was our youth program, we'd have a whole cadre of young people coming from across town when we did home ownership classes. I remember like it was yesterday. This was about 10 years ago. I have pictures to prove this. We did a workshop, how to start your own business. We ran out of seats. It was standing wow. room only. We said, well, where are you from? Where are you from? I know some people came from Manhattan, but some people I think came from Yonkers and people had seen the flyer, people knew about it. And so such was the case with many of the different workshops and classes. And that's just been a trend that you'll see me doing over the years, empowering people, holding workshops, holding a series, helping people get real information that can transform their lives. You want to start a business? Here, I'll show you how to do it. You want to buy your first home? No problem. Come to this. Learn how to do it. And we had a program helping people get their credit score. What does that number mean, et cetera? So many other programs as well.
0: So we kind of hit, you know, 1.0, mm-hmm. 2.0, and now you're running for the assembly. What yeah. would 3.0 <laughs> look like?
2: Yeah. So here I am. Here I am. And people might say, look, you know, that's fine. Nice lady. She did work in her community. Look, no disrespect, why are you now the best person to run for an assembly seat? That's certainly a fair question. I'm not a politician. I certainly did not even know that I would be running for this seat. But the situation became such just based on the level of disconnect that has existed over the years between the community and the political establishment. I have been watching for many, many years a profound level of discontent, disenchantment, and disappointment from the people in terms of how they were being treated by the party, by the establishment, by their leaders. And here we are. We're in a situation that's less than ideal. Nobody at all takes any pleasure in the circumstances that led up to the seat being vacant. And I'm running because I have served and led in my community. I continue to marvel and just be frankly shocked when I see people wake up one day and say that they want to run for all sorts of seats. People wake up and say, I'm going to run for this, I'm going to run for that. And when the public says, oh, Tell us a little bit about what you've done anywhere. Just just (laughs) tell us anything. Just give us something to hold on to. We like you. Just tell us what you've done. We continue in our society to see people ask for the community's vote without having much that they can point to by way of service or by way of leadership. Now, leadership, we can sit here and argue about it. Not everybody had a chance to start an organization. That's fine. That's not the yardstick by which we measure whether people are viable candidates. But service, I think, is important because service is what we do when we're not expecting anything, So what's your campaign all about? I have a few things that I'm really passionate about. And again, if anyone would like to check us out, our website is easily accessible online. Frontis, which is my last name, F-R-O-N-T-U-S, for, the word for, F-O-R, newyork.com. So I have a few things that I really, really care about. There are three points that I've been talking a lot about. These are three ways that I want to treat the seat differently, right? Because, Because of what's happened, I can't just... Roll up as it were and pretend that all is well, right? Yeah. And I can't do business as usual. So I want to be able to show a different kind of regard and respect for this seat before we get into the weeds and the nitty-gritty. So, how do I intend to do that? The first thing that I want to do is I want to focus on community inclusion and engagement. For far too long, and I've heard people complaining for many years. People feel a disconnect between them and their political leaders, right? Mm -hmm. People feel like their voices don't matter. And then they just wake up and find what people are deciding for them without really having that much input. And so I want to right off the bat start something that would be a Southern Brooklyn think tank Mm. where everybody in the community would be invited to come and to put their thinking hats on. And I would like to be in constant dialogue with them in terms of what's going on in the neighborhood, initiatives that I would like to come out of my office. But it's also engaging people in the problem solving that's going on. Not to get too deep into the politics, but if you look at some of the things that's happened over the years, one simple thing that a politician could do is just hold a community meeting, town halls, just talk to people. And say, well, what do people think about that? You know, here we are. What's the mood like? I just want to connect with everyone. What would people like to see? That's
0: really rare because usually when you get town halls, they're either explicitly issue focused Mm -hmm. and it's usually a politician saying, I'm going to bring people in with answers and you're going to listen about what I'm already doing. Mm -hmm. And it's not a open forum of Mm -hmm. let's figure out what my priority should be. That's what a town hall really should be.
2: Getting input, this idea of getting input, input from people.
0: And have them also talk about possible solutions, like yes. would you imagine this like feeding into legislation and sure, initiatives and
2: sure, because what's happening is twofold: the community is going to reflect on proposed solutions for problems in their community, but also they are giving me input, yeah, and I'm listening to them. I want people to take this journey along with me, first time candidate I'm not being controlled or bossed around by anybody. And it's one of the most liberating things and actually makes perfect sense. And in fact, just last night I was I was sitting down thinking, I said, you know what? I need to do a workshop. And it shows you I have like that (laughs) professor brain because it's all about like information, Mm -hmm. information. Teach people, educate them, let people know how things work. A lot of people still don't know how Albany works. And I just had this vision of I'll do it or maybe I'll bring someone in. But I feel like we need a presentation. And what perfect time to do it with this race <laughs> with me as a candidate. You know what? While I'm running, either before or after, let's show people like a whole thing. Do you know this is what the state house looks like? Do you know the relationship between the governor and the state house? Do you know who the three men in the room is? Like I'm already doing yeah. all my do you know who the speaker of the assembly is? Let me walk people step by step in terms of what I'm going to be able to do when I get to this house. Yeah. So first, I'm going to get there. This is how it works. We're going to be on committees. This is what it looks like to pass a bill. This is what it looks like if I'm working with a colleague. This is what it looks like if I want to go and fight for my fair share for my community because everyone's pushing their issue. Being visual and letting people go, wow, that's so, And oh, I didn't know that. So that's how it works. So yeah, and this is where I'm going to be for six months, but then I'll be in the district and so on and so forth. And you won't believe just how people will warm up to that because again, there's this air of mystique that we do on purpose Yeah. to make it seem like, no, 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 you're over there. Let me, I'll tell you.
0: Oh yeah. And Albany is structured to be opaque in every way. It's not designed for people to easily understand it.
2: So let me use this as point number two. To the question that Mary asked, when she said, "What are some highlights of your campaign?" Because one of them has to do with transparency of government spending. I tend to call that point three because I have these three points, but now I've just made that point two. <laughs> so, look, the elephant in the room is that the seat has been touched by corruption, and it's not really about this seat. Again, we're looking at the district. We're talking about Southern Brooklyn. Oh well, yeah, and, and the seat
0: and all seats, yes. I think everywhere in New York City have been touched by corruption. This is a systemic problem.
2: It is a systemic problem. But you know what? The first thing is just not having access to information and knowing how things work. Money is at the root of all of this. And Mm -hmm. we can't even have an honest conversation about corruption or about transparency in government spending if we don't talk about the role of money, not only in politics when you're running for office, but what happens on the government side. And why is it that there isn't 100% clarity right? Mm. And transparency in terms of how every single red cent is spent. Yeah, It's utterly shocking. Most people don't know
0: that, that it's not public.
2: There should be a tool that facilitates the public's access. It should be readily accessible. It should be at our fingertips. We should be able to quickly go online and be able to see how is this approximately 200 million dollar budget spent every year yeah one percent of that budget now if you say one percent of anything it sounds minuscule and it sounds unimportant not one percent of a 200 billion dollar budget yeah
0: not one percent of like one of the states with the strongest (laughs) strongest economic engines for the country
1: one percent and we're still talking about did you say two billion dollars with a b
2: guys yeah Yeah. two billion dollars is a lot of money
0: and what is that $2 billion subscribed for?
2: So that's a slush fund. Of course it is. Also called pork barrel spending. In fact, an article just came out a few weeks ago that says another year, another budget, and another allocation of pork barrel spending. I couldn't even read it in one sitting. I read it. I got upset. I put it down. And so what's the problem with that? Well, first of all, as a candidate, one of the things that I know for a fact that I want to do differently is that I want to bring full transparency. I want people to be able to, first of all, work with the community so that we're deciding on projects that should be funding. That's one thing. But secondly, just putting that information on there on the website. Nobody's doing that. It's the right thing to do. If you're an elected official, people should be able to know quickly. (laughs) Like, quickly.
0: I guess people don't know, but that 2 billion senators and assembly people aren't required to put their name on the things that they've advocated to put this money toward. People don't like Congress for their pork barrel spending, but at least the senators mm. and assembly people have to put their name mm. on the things that they're advocating money for so that a politician can't just give $20 million or whatever to a friend. How do you figure out conflict of interest if you don't know who is having the conflict of interest? transparency could kickstart so many investigations.
2: So we've talked about two of the points, community inclusion and engagement vis-a-vis the Southern Brooklyn think tank. We talked about transparency and government spending, which is super important to me, and this idea that I also want to be a different kind of legislator, really being totally transparent in light of All of the things which have happened, I think I owe the community that so that at any given time, people know what I'm doing. The third thing is this idea of civic engagement. Mm. When we talk about the displeasure that people are feeling with regards to how things have been historically, how do we fight that? A lot of the things that we talk about in politics, we simplify the issues. But really, in truth, most of the things we're talking about require a multi-pronged approach. There's not just one thing. You have to do a lot of things, right? Yeah. We have traditionally been disempowered. And it's this idea that for years and years, people have led us to believe that only certain kind of people can run for office, right? Yeah. Whether they're super talented, they're super smart, or there's something about them. And we can argue and talk about you know, what makes someone a good candidate. But I'll tell you the truth, I'm really passionate about this idea of doing a series under the auspices of my office as the Assemblywoman for the 46th District, bringing a civic engagement series where we're training, I'm going to say hundreds, not at a time, but in different cohorts of residents throughout the district to run for public office. And we're going to teach them because education is power. Mm. I'm tired of people not knowing what an assembly member is. Not to say that I'm angry at them. I'm tired that such a system exists where people don't know. And we're going to teach them. We'll teach them about county committee. We'll teach them about running for city council, state seats, all the way up to whatever. And I think it's very, very important. In fact, I know of one organization that does this. I'm sure there are several. I'm sure there are plenty I just happen to know of one, which is quite formidable. They're called the Latino Leadership Institute. Mm. They don't do it for money. They do it to democratize information, to give people access to what historically only some people knew in terms of running campaigns and what it's all about. I actually did take one of their classes and I said, wow, this is the revolution we need. We need more people to know about this. Yeah, And to put this information in people's hands
0: you'd never hear someone say like, oh, I'm going to be training up the person who might yep. run against me next time. Yep. And I have no problem with that.
2: Yep, You open the floodgates. I mean, it just requires a shift in the thinking. And when you start to say it's not about using these seats as an opportunity for my personal edification or for my career, but what is everybody else getting out of it? So aside from those three issues, which I always use just to kind of break the ice and make sure that people understand that I'm thinking about the seat differently, this community cares a great deal about the state of its public schools. Every single time I'm here, I'm talking to people, I'm listening. They care about um, overcrowdedness in the schools here in Bay Ridge. Look, not only will I be a champion and an advocate to make sure that all of our schools are fully funded. Every time I say it, it feels strange because I don't understand why we have to fight for things that are basic and common sense and that we Mm -hmm. should just have Mm -hmm. in a democracy. It's like, fine, I'll fight for us to get all the funding that we're entitled to. Uh, (laughs) I don't know why we're not getting it. But more importantly than that, I want to raise awareness about the lack of mental health services in our school. I know a little bit Mm -hmm. about this because this has to do with my background and training. All the years that I spent at schools of social work, I did my BSW, I did my MSW, and then I also have an MA in clinical psychology. So I've been thinking about mental health. I've been doing mental health for many years. And I know personally how important mental health services are because I actually brought a number of vital mental health programs. When I was at my nonprofit, I wrote different grants over the years. One time, uh, right after Hurricane Sandy, I got some funding from AmeriCares to establish a post-disaster mental health program. And we had people standing around the corner waiting to come in to speak to a psychotherapist at the office. And so what that says to me is that there's still a stigma with communities receiving mental health. But things have changed. Just in the last few years, right in front of my eyes, I've noticed that we can talk about it now. We have the Thrive NYC. We have the first lady of New York City, Shirley McRae, doing her wonderful program. And so more and more we see people talking about mental health. But you know what? Where there's still a big disconnect? In our schools. Yeah. In our schools. I continue to talk to principals who have some 700 students or more. And then they have either a point five social worker or one Uh, mental health professional on the premises and not available all the time. I think that's shameful. That's shameful,
0: especially with the school shootings that have been happening. Mm -hmm. um, How come the teacher didn't convince this one troubled student or this other? That's not their job. There need to be mental health professionals in the schools. And then it ties into overcrowding and then it ties into mm-hmm. school funding.
2: May I say that the children now in the United States of America who are children now in 2018, they are living in a very, very different time mm. than their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents. Certainly then when I was a child, I did not live in a world where every single day I watched children getting shot in school. The bottom line is that our kids are experiencing trauma. Our kids have behavioral and emotional needs, and we need to just have somebody available more than one person at schools with hundreds of students. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just like, it's just so obvious, but as common sense as we find it, it's not going to fall from the sky. And with my background, there's nobody more suited to advocate for this issue. Myself, as a mental health professional, I provided mental health services throughout the 46th District, and I work with students from K through 12, with students as young as kindergarten and students all the way up to the 12th grade to either do groups, to do one-on-one counseling, to meet with parents of students that had behavioral problems
1: Uh, What schools are you familiar with in the
2: district? So in my neighborhood in Coney Island, through my affiliation, doing some consulting work for some different nonprofit organizations like the YWCA of New York City, like the Jewish Community Council of Greater Coney Island. Over the years, I would find myself inside of PS 288. I found myself working inside of PS 329, where I did mental health services with students there from K through five. At 288, I work with students in grade six to eight, where I did a leadership council. I worked inside of Abraham Lincoln High School for many years, where I also taught a leadership curriculum that I developed from scratch. So I have this history <laughs> of teaching leadership to students of all ages. And it was great, actually, yeah. because we would do advocacy, which now I'm teaching like master <laughs> students. So it's pretty cool, actually, because here in Bay Ridge, I really had a great time at the McKinley Junior High School, which I... Hey,
0: you hit another one of my (laughs) alma maters.
2: Yes, yes. I really enjoyed that time. I was doing it on behalf of our Chair Human Services who asked me to establish a youth leadership council with their eighth graders. And it's this idea of teaching leadership tricks of the trade and helping young people advocate for themselves and make a list of what they wanted from the administration of the program and what did they want to see in their school. And it was very empowering.
0: And by the way, you're rattling off all of those school names and numbers from memory. There are no notes in front of you right now. No, no, (laughs) no. That's impressive.
1: (laughs) Have you thought about committees or what roles you'd like to take on in the assembly? I have. I don't know that I could list that many,
2: but the first one that just pops out right in top of my head is a mental health. That's where my training is in. I also thought about small businesses because I happen to know that in Southern Brooklyn, the small business community is robust. Mm -hmm. Small business owners are always looking for support. I didn't really get to talk about that in terms of issues I care about, but we must do everything we can to support our small businesses. They're the backbone of the community. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the work that I've done, really coming from social services and human services, I feel right at home in anything that has to do with child welfare, with seniors, with education, I'm just kind of ready. You know, I, I'm told that it's not going to be up to me. So I'm not walking around <laughs> with like my wish list. It's just more like a disposition. Together, we will decide what our top priorities are that comes with my community inclusion. Mm-hmm. And how cool would it be before I go up to Albany yeah. where you guys are like sending me off with our priorities together, where it's not me telling you, like we're yeah. deciding. I'm like, guys, all right, I'm leaving this Friday. What are our top four or five things? And then just having that relationship. I really just see it as a budding relationship with the people doing Facebook Live, letting people see me, like letting people know what's going on. And then just kind of being honest, reporting back to the people and being honest about what's possible. Sometimes it seems like we're abandoned and forgotten about. And we don't want that. We don't want people to say, oh, that's just Southern Brooklyn. They're a whole other world over there. You ever been out there? It's a whole peninsula. You know, and then to kind of write us
1: off like we're Mm -hmm. on a separate island or something like that. Yeah,
0: that happens for most of South Brooklyn.
1: I see you at community board meetings. I see you at organizing meetings. Often they're just to listen and learn, but never afraid to contribute, always have something to say, too. But every time I see you, I'm just like... What is your day like? Are you just campaigning 24-7? It's
2: <laughs> <laughs> a great question.
1: i are like the hardest working woman in Bay Ridge. Oh, you... that,
2: that's very kind. No, I, I, I have to make the rounds. I'm taking this race very seriously. I'm not going to say anything about other people who are running, but um, I'm running. I'm actually yeah. running. See? <laughs> See that? I'm actually running. So I'm in Bay Ridge. I'm in Diker Heights. I'm moving around. I'm meeting with voters. It's very important. And you know why? Because it keeps going back to the premise. There's a common theme that you'll see throughout my life from the work that I've done right after college. And it's, again, treat people like you respect them. Just treat people like you respect them and that you respect their intelligence. Don't feel entitled to anything. I'm not entitled to anybody's vote. I'm working for it. So right now, this is what I do. This is my nine to five. I was teaching this semester at NYU. I designed a new course for the master students at the Silver School of Social Work, which was called Advocacy and Social Justice. It was a blast. I had so much fun. I just submitted final grades like a couple of days ago. So that's oh. it. I should say, though, because people will see this when they Google me after running my nonprofit for many years and growing as a person, as a professional over those years, I moved on at the end of 2016, and then I got more serious about my teaching where I was teaching advocacy at Columbia and then now at NYU. But I also started a small consulting firm. So I started, my LLC is called MKF Ventures. And under my LLC, I have two small DBAs uh, doing business as. So I have two brands that I use. They're kind of sister agencies, but they stand on their own feet. One is called Avant Garde Consulting. It has its own website. The other one is called Avant Garde Behavioral Health Resources, and the reason why it's set up that way because it just shows you the <laughs> areas of my expertise. Avant Garde Consulting provides capacity building assistance to people that are running nonprofits around mm-hmm. the city of New York, and because I have all of this grassroots experience, I get called all the time. I rarely solicit business. not rarely I've never like yeah. I've never done anything to advertise my services. It's all been word of mouth. And people know me as that woman who started multiple nonprofits. And it's just been really a joy. I don't charge anything near what I should or could. Um, Sometimes (laughs) it feels like I'm doing it as an extension of my nonprofit. But I enjoy when I meet people and they remind me of where I was many moons ago when I wanted to start my nonprofit and they have this great idea and they just need help. My other consultancy, Avant-Garde Behavioral Health Resources, helps organizations think through and design new and innovative ways to do mental health in their community. So for example, I was working with a large nonprofit here in New York City, one of the largest mental health providers in the five boroughs, and they wanted to do a new initiative with clergy training Mm -hmm. and engaging clergy, and I did some work for them to help them get that off the ground. So I was excited about that. Yeah, nice. but th- this was all like many months ago. So from now until September, it's a campaign.
0: I guess we should leave it there because we all have to go to a community board meeting. Exactly. Thinking Speaking about, about <laughs> making the rounds, um, community board 10 is going to be starting up in uh, an hour and a half over here. So, Matilda, thanks so much for coming in and just laying so much out. And again, everyone petitioning is... Until July 12th. What was the website again, if people need to get in contact with you and want to start helping?
2: Sure. Thank you so much.
1: Frontis4NewYork.com. And that's Mathilde, M-A-T-H-Y-L-D-E. Yep. Yep. Frontis, F-R-O-N-T-U-S.
2: Yeah, that's a French name. People often ask. It's Mathilde. It's Mathilde Fontus, But, you know, why say it that way? I'll get angry (laughs) looks.
0: Well, I'm Dan Hedix, and this is Mary Heddix, and it should technically be FBA, but... You know, whatever. <laughs> <So> you
2: know. <laughs> That's how we have to do in the U.S. You got to say it both ways. So thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, this was Thanks, great. Thanks,
2: Bay Ridge, for listening.
1: We want to thank Mathilde so much for coming in and talking to us about her campaign.
0: If you want to volunteer or get involved, remember her website is Frontis for New York. That's F-R-O-N-T-U-S-F-O-R, the word for, N-Y.com. And also during the interview, Mathilde was kind of alluding quite a bit to something that had touched the seat. That was a reference to Pam Harris, the previous occupant of the seat.
1: Pam Harris is under indictment for misappropriation of funds through her nonprofit.
0: Yeah, and that resulted in her resigning from her seat a couple of months ago after quite a while of not really responding to the allegations. As a result, it didn't qualify for a special election, and now it is considered a open seat during this upcoming state and local election cycle.
1: Yep, so we've got ourselves a primary, folks. Matilde will face two opponents so far that we know of.
0: Yeah, one of them should be announcing today, Monday, Chris McCrate, who is involved in the Bayridge Democrats.
1: And Ethan Lustig-Elgribly, who is involved in the same Democratic club. That Pam Harris came up through.
0: And he declared uh, quite a bit previously as well. McCready is the most recent entrant. There are unlikely to be additional entrants into the campaign now that petitioning season is underway. But, you know, we'll keep you guys informed.
1: Stranger things have happened in Bay Ridge politics.
0: Indeed. And I believe there is only one Republican that I know of that is running. That is Steve Saperstein. Mm-hmm. If you're a Republican, I guess that's your pretty much your only primary vote. So... <laughs>
1: <laughs> what a time to be a Democrat. <laughs>
0: yeah, I got a lot of choices yeah, lately. all right. <laughs> and speaking of options, there are a lot of ways of getting in touch with us. You can check us out on Twitter at At Radio Free BR, you can check us out online where all of our show notes live and all of our past episodes. And we are setting up a community archive of events that don't really qualify to be on the podcast feed, but are audio that you might want to listen and refer back to about community events. That's where we're going to be putting all of our oral histories from Fifth Avenue Festival. That is RadioFreeBayRidge.org. And you can also check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Get in touch with us. Let us know what you want to hear. Let us know what you want to see. And let us know if you want us to participate in any local events this summer. We are happy to set up our oral history booths at blog parties and anything else. This is a platform for the progressive left in Bay Ridge.
1: And like and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher.
0: Wherever fine progressive hyperlocal podcasts are sold. And until next time. Stay free, Bay Ridge.